Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Team Blaney podcast. My name is Adam Rogers, and alongside me is co-host Steve Mez. If you're not familiar with us, the Team Blaney podcast is brought to you by fans for fans. Steve and I have been diehard followers of the Blaney Racing family for more than two decades. Today, we closely follow third-generation driver Ryan Blaney, who pilots the number 12 Ford Mustang for Team Penske on the NASCAR Cup Series circuit. Each week on the podcast, we will review Ryan's latest NASCAR race and then preview the race for the upcoming weekend, offering news, notes, statistics, and analysis. We're back here again for episode five of the Team Blaney podcast, and we're about to review the road course at Daytona. Is another exciting race, uh, but another up and down race for Ryan. Well, yeah, it went back and forth a little bit. Started deep in the field because of what happened last week and how the uh, qualifying is set up. So from here on in, got to get better so you can start up closer to the front. And it was a little hard to make the way up to the front. No matter what type of racing they're doing, if the car isn't set up right and you know you can't make your way up through the field, um, it's hard. And uh, Ryan raced his butt off all day long, to tell you the truth. Uh, you may not see it on TV. It's hard to tell sometimes, but um, his car didn't handle very well, and he still got up through the field a couple different times, a couple different ways. So, you know, there was some excitement if you're able to watch uh, specifically or, or listen in specifically to Ryan's racing. And, Adam, you got to be at the track, so you actually got to watch nothing but Ryan uh, all race long. So you got to see exactly what was going on. Yeah, definitely have been spoiled these last couple of weeks being able to go to Daytona for two weeks in a row, headed to Homestead. We'll talk about Homestead a little bit later in the episode and catch some more racing there. Now, Steve, this was the first points-paying road course race of the season, and there's actually seven road courses on the schedule this year, and we keep uh, hammering down that Ryan is a great road course racer uh, overall in his career with around a 13th-place average finish. What do you think of road course racing overall, Steve? Well, I, I like it. I like the fact that it challenges uh, guys to drive, like you say, just not just lefts, but lefts and rights, to, get, to be able to handle the quick turns, be able to handle braking, to be able to handle shifting, downshifting, you know, all the different things, uh, not just, you know, get it out there and then come off the accelerator a little bit and then go back onto the accelerator. Uh, so it gives you uh, – it shows you how these guys are able to adapt to driving all kind of different conditions. And we almost even had rain. Uh, so, you know, you see everything, you don't just see one type of skill set. And, um, these are the 40 best guys in the world. So sooner or later, you know, they get to show their, show their talents off and guys who may not be great at it right off the bat, um, through a couple races, through simulator work, they get better. They don't just sit around and hope that they get better. They get better. Now, as we were just saying, I've been lucky enough to see the Daytona road course in person for the Rolex race. And then also this past weekend's race, you've seen the, you've seen the Roval, uh, in person. And I think you also said you went to mid Ohio to see an Xfinity race. Do you have a preference on your favorite road course that's on the schedule this year? Um, I, I I'm interested to see what Indianapolis is going to be like, especially since we may make a trip out to Indianapolis and see it. Um, road America should be interesting because we've seen Xfinity races on, on TV there and it's a lot longer course, uh, so the cars are able to, in certain areas to get up to speed better. Um, Watkins Glen always seems to be my favorite. It seems to be that there, there's good action there and a lot of good different places to pass. Um, so I, it, really, I like a lot of them. <laughs> I may be a little strange that way. Now, I think we've talked a little bit about whether or not we're the average NASCAR fan. I know there's some very traditional fans that were – you know, they, they were okay with NASCAR going to Riverside back in the day and they were okay with Sonoma and Watkins Glen. And they're sad to see some more of these racetracks disappear from the schedule to make way for road courses. But I would say losing some of the mile and a half tracks, though I feel bad for the people in those markets. I think the racing is going to be better on road courses overall. So I think it's time. Let's take an in-depth look into Ryan's race weekend. Ryan Blaney race recap Daytona international speedway road course. So, Steve, Ryan, what, started uh, from the 27th position officially for this race? Yeah, 27th. Um, you know, we had 70 laps total, which was 252.7 miles. Uh, stage break at lap 16, and the uh, stage two ended up at lap 34. And like, like I said, 70 laps for the full distance. Um, he had two spotters. He had Josh uh, Williams, who he usually has, and then he had Dave Nichols, uh, who they call Mule. 
Um, and I think he was only doing turns five and six the way they had it set up. So I'm not sure exactly where everybody's standing when they're spotting, but they definitely needed two spotters to kind of get through some of the tier- turns where one guy couldn't see at all. Um, they start off the race and uh, moved up a little bit, like within the first couple laps. Uh, by lap two, he got all the way up to 20th. He was uh, 17th by lap five. And he was uh, complaining about grinding, feeling a grinding noise under braking early on. But I think everybody was probably feeling that because the brakes, are, you know, are always going to be an issue when you're, you know, going from 160 some miles an hour on that back stretch, and then, you know, having to slow down quickly to get through that. Uh, well, you call it a horseshoe. And then, you know, once again, they get back up onto the track, and then, you know, 120, 130 miles an hour, and having to brake on the front stretch again. So, brakes are going to be huge, and you'll see as the day goes on that they get heated up pretty good. Um, there was caution at lap 16, or I'm sorry, caution at lap 11, and he was up to 16th at that point. Um, and talking about lack of turns, so that was the instructions he was trying to give them on to how to get the car uh, turning better. Uh, they took four tires and went two up on the track bar there. So that was a little bit of a swing to try and make uh, have him uh, improve coming on. Um, out of the turns there. Uh, the end of stage one, he was up to 14th, so he actually made his way up pretty good there. It was pretty impressive to see him move through the field a little bit, and road courses are a really physical race, and I will say Ryan was pretty physical throughout this race, especially when a little bit later on when he was involved in a, in a crash, or at least potentially, where there's no video evidence as far as we can tell <laughs> that, that he was involved. Um, but he did have uh, A.J. Allmendinger was coming up through the field early on as well, who's another great road course racer. They had a, they bumped uh, fenders a little bit, and uh, about uh, after he got on back up onto the the Daytona Super Stretch in the back, I think Ryan might have had a little bit more horsepower and kind of ran into the back of AJ at one point. Now you mentioned that he had trouble all day with turning, very important at road courses. But one thing I noticed from the seats that we were at, we were seated uh, about halfway up the grandstand, but also right at the entrance to the inner portion of the road course and you could see like guys like Denny Hamlin and Chase Elliott and um, everyone that was really uh, succeeding throughout this race could really turn their cars tightly into that uh, first turn one of the course. Ryan for the most part was either swinging out pretty wide or even if he was on the inside was definitely not able to turn as tight and get off of that turn as fast as everybody else. That's something I noticed all race long. It also looked like something he was working on trying different entry points and breaking points and just really was never able to hit it unfortunately. Yeah, one of the complaints later on in the race was uh, wheel hop uh, being tight and center and then no drive off. So that's that whole combination right there of what you just said. He was he was having a problem, you know, with the with the wheel hopping, you know, and and, and then trying to trying to get that car to, you know, be able to punch the accelerator coming out of the out of those turns. So yeah, that was something he complained about later in the race, and and they took a big swing a little later on uh, to try and change that. Now, one thing I'm not used to seeing, having this been our first road course race that we attended, but you can really see in every turn almost throughout the entire race, someone was locking up the front end. And they talked about the drivers being able to adjust the brake bias within the car to try and, it, it seemed like the cars that really had a lot of front brake were the ones that were susceptible to locking up that front end of the turns. And when you see that from the stands, it's just, you can hear the screech a little bit, but you just see the smoke kind of pouring out from the front as they went. Um, I did see that a lot of that from Ryan throughout the race. I saw a ton of it from Brad Kes- Zlowski, who had an adventurous race himself, uh, but ended up with a top five finish. I don't know if he ever actually got his car adjusted. I think it might have maybe was a little bit more strategy that got him into the top five by the end of the race. But there are plenty of guys, it wasn't just Ryan, definitely, that were struggling struggling with that drive in and out of the turns for sure. Yeah. Um, they ended up, uh, after you know the problems with the wheel hop and so forth, they, they, they took a little bit of a swing, like I said, with the track bar there. And they had... Um, one problem on the pit stop that they had to wait for the 53 to get out of their way. So they ended up like 23rd on the restart going into the next segment. Um, there ended up being a caution on lap 28 in that second segment. Um, that was when the 42 um, found the uh, found the wall in NASCAR turn one. Um, like you said, uh, there's no real good video evidence, at least as far as we've seen. So we're not exactly sure how he got there, but uh, it was one of those racing deals more than anything else, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was telling you that watching uh, Ryan and Ross Chastain race for several several laps, pretty much bumper to bumper for a long time, and then eventually uh, Ross was able to pass Ryan going into 
the West, they call it like the Western horseshoe coming out of turn five there. Ross finally got around Ryan, then they're going into turn six. Ryan's trying to make an effort to get back past him. He kind of slides through turn six, accelerates as they're coming out of that to go onto uh, NASCAR turn one, uh, which is turn seven of the road course. And I'm not sure what happened there. I, I Like you were saying, even from the stands, there wasn't much video evidence. All I saw was Ryan very closely following Ross and then Ross eventually ending up into the wall. Uh, Ross said during his post-race interview that he felt his back tires lifted off the ground, which would say that Ryan uh, had a pretty decent uh, involvement in that crash. But Ryan's front end was looked like it was pretty clean. So either yeah. they had that reinforced really well or um, he, he pretty delicately put him into the wall. But yeah. either way, I mean, they say the road courses are kind of the new short tracks on the series because of the beat and banging that they do. And hopefully... Um, those two will be able to work out any differences that they have going forward. Yeah. There's no real history there. I don't think so. I think they should be okay. Um, they got to the end of stage two and uh, Ryan actually ended up 15th at the end of stage two. So um, whatever they were doing, you know, was helping somewhat and he was making his way up through the field. Um, you know, uh, after this pit stop for, for the uh, stage break, uh, he ended up 16th to start the last segment. Um, Early on in the segment with uh, like about 28 laps to go in the race, he did complain of the car basically feeling like it did last year. That's the way he put it, that uh, whatever they did last year on the road course, that it felt that same way, that it was doing the same thing. So somewhere in there, that's where they decided the next time that they came in, they were going to do something. (laughs) Um, But they were having smoke coming out of the car somewhere with 26 to go. And um, they Ryan, they figured out it was a left rear tire rub. So they came in and pitted off sequence from everybody else, kind of lost position. Um, but, uh, you know, and at that point they said they were about five laps short. So they knew they were gonna have to stop one more time. Um, but that's when the uh, rain came in that you brought to the track with you. Yes. Um, yeah. I remember telling Steve that um, for one, that Ryan, I thought at that point, I'm like, this is, if they don't get a caution at this point in the race with him pitting shy of the fuel window, it's going to be a disaster. And I was already thinking, you know, the Daytona 500 didn't go well. If he's, he didn't get any stage points in that race. He didn't get any stage points so far in this road course race. Like what a disaster. And then I'd also mentioned going into this weekend, we were pretty impressed that, wow, it doesn't look like there's any rain in the forecast, but um, a little joke between my wife and myself is just that the rain seems to kind of follow us around and nearly, I mean, we've been to Daytona dozens of times at this point, and I, very few of those weekends was there ever uh, no per, no precipitation in the forecast. And then that specific day, I think it was, depending on which weather app you looked at, it was between 2 and 7% chance of rain. And it was clear skies all the way until about the middle of that uh, that last segment of the race. And you could hear the guys on MRN saying, wow, the clouds are really building. There's not any rain anywhere. And they're looking at the radar and there's no rain really present on the radar. But then you see a rainbow starting to form that eventually formed the entire way over the track. And then that's when it eventually started raining over there in uh, turns seven and eight or turns one and two uh, on the NASCAR oval. So... And it was a little chilly, so I we've we're from Ohio, and we've kind of lost that uh, tolerance to the cold weather, and we were definitely shivering up there in the rain a little bit, waiting for that race to end. Yeah, they. Um, I know people complained about the rain uh, stopping for a caution, but NASCAR has to give them the option. They gave them the option to go ahead and put the tires on if they wanted to, didn't want to, and I think they just had to do that. And the people who complained think that it changed the race, but the truth is, is you still have to make the pit stop. You still have to make it work. You still have to do the restart. And if it happened because of that or happened later on because somebody crashed somebody, you know, and blocked the track, well, you know, you still have to execute those things, whether or not, um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's throw this caution, just to make things happen. You know, I mean, they had to do that. It was raining enough and it gave teams the option and they have their own radars there and they can check and see if they think it's going to get worse or if it's going to get better. Um, I don't think anybody did take the rain tires. I know that what happened at that caution though, is that's when uh, the, uh, they took a big swing at, at the car and Todd did some things where um, on the radio, he was telling certain guys to go over the wall. Cause you're only allowed so many guys over the wall. 
so certain guys went over the wall. Um, from what I got, uh, and TV actually mentioned too, they ch tried to change the nose weight, and they did something with the front suspension, and then they jumped back over with regular tire changers and made sure that the tires were on right. Um, and uh, he was back about 30th position, I think, at that point. And I think the restart for the rest of the race happened with about 12 to go. Yeah. Um, at that point, so 12 to go, and I think he was bad about 30th with 12 to go. And um, actually, <laughs> he progressed forward from that point really well. So whatever swing they did make at it, um, it kind of worked. Uh, the brakes were going at the end of the race for him. Uh, but three to go, he complained about the brakes. But at that point, you know, he was racing really hard. And like I said, most of the race, you can't see it on TV necessarily because they're not focused on one person. But he raced hard all race long. His equipment may not have been where he wanted it to be or needed it to be. So he tried as many different things as he could to pass as many cars as he could. And 15th with what kind of issues he was having is a pretty good finish for the day. It really is. Yeah, and I think we were talking earlier, and I mentioned that Larry McReynolds on NASCAR Race Hub had said that basically Ryan and Todd Gordon changed everything on that car but the roof number. So wholesale changes going into that. Backing up to that caution for the rain, even if they weren't anticipating teams turning to the wet weather tires, I think what that caution actually did was just prevent some catastrophe happening because it was raining. I mean, I, we could feel it in the stands and you could see it raining fairly heavily in turns seven and uh, eight, the NASCAR one and two. And can you imagine what would happen? I mean, this happened back in the all-star race at Charlotte years back, but this field barreling into one and two over there or seven and eight on the road course with it raining with slicks on, I think could have been pretty disastrous. It could have wrecked several good cars. So I think throwing that caution, they slowed the field down. And also what it did, it was a very short shower, really. And actually that caution let the rain kind of move out of the area to where the track was able to kind of dry itself up a little bit. It was very windy on Sunday, and I think that helped. They didn't even really need to send too many jet dryers out. I think they did a little bit in the infield portions just to blow the water off. But I don't even think NASCAR really anticipated the drive or the teams putting the wet weather tires on, but I think it just let the rain move away. It stopped them from barreling into turns one and two. Uh, on the big oval and crashing and get back to racing after that. I don't want to just point out and say, oh, it's all Chase Elliott fans or somebody else that was in the front that said, yeah, I mean, obviously if it was Ryan, we'd probably be a little bit upset, but I'd like to think we'd be open-minded enough to realize that they really did have safety. Um, I'm also one of those people that's pretty anti-conspiracy theory, and uh, <laughs> I know everything. Uh, there's always debris cautions and all this stuff, and I'm like, you know what, if there was debris cautions that were out there trying to make it certain that someone would win, Dale Earnhardt Jr. would have eight championships and Chase would have already won the Daytona 500. <laughs> like, if there was a conspiracy, like, that would have been the, the biggest thing to happen. So, Yeah. So, yeah, as you were saying, finishing 15th from what I saw during the day, the way that they struggled – you mentioned Ryan racing hard. I think I said that earlier. It was a very physical race for him. I said at one point that um, where he was racing, he was in the back of the pack or to the mid pack. He was with the same guys all day. And I said, he hasn't exactly been friendly. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not surprised uh, between him roughing up a couple of people and uh, some other people really not giving him the space that he probably needed as he was maneuvering his way through those uh, handling problems. It was nice. The, the finish of the race was really nice, too, that, um, you know, what we've seen in the first two weeks of the season is a lot of people hitting a lot of people to win. And uh, Christopher Bell pulled off a great pass on Logano right there going into the front uh, uh, toward the start finish. And then he just pulled away from him and he didn't have to bump him. He didn't have to do anything to him. He just drove in there better handled that, uh, that that turn better, came out of it better, passed him. And it was nice to see that. It was nice to see somebody win the race without having to really kill somebody to do it. And what was great about that, I mean, I like Christopher Bell, just the fact that he has roots on dirt tracks and sprint cars, and he's won a race at Sharon Speedway that the Blaney family owns, is the fact that he 
it wasn't a fluke. He didn't score any stage points in the first stage, but he did get stage points in the second stage, and he was up front pretty much the rest of that race. Some He had a pretty good pit call uh, at one point uh, toward the end that to come in and get tires, fresh tires, and that's pretty much what did win him the race over uh, Logano, who had stayed out on, I think, six-lap older tires than the rest of the field. And it was kind of fun watching him track Logano down. At first, Logano was out to a pretty decent lead for a few laps, but then eventually, especially within those last two laps, Christopher Bell was really able to track him down. Logano, I did throw some pretty heavy blocks, again, at the end of that race. Um, I think he had kind of mentioned or joked a little bit on his post-race interview, saying the, the interviewer had asked him, you know, you know, what more could you have done? Or did you try to keep him behind you? I mean, he's like, I did try to keep him behind him. Like, you know, did you see? <laughs> like, <laughs> he really tried mm-hmm. to keep him behind him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wasn't able to do it. Um, it was a little bit square. Bell got a little bit squirrely during some of the blocks that Logano was throwing. But like you said, he was able to keep the car pointed straight and make a clean pass. They didn't really hit each other and uh, went on to the win. And I will tell you from the stands, I don't know if it was just the fact that he passed Joey Logano for this win, but the limited capacity, 30,000 people that were there, no matter what hat they had on or shirt, were all pretty much cheering for Christopher Bell. And I think it's just because it's a good story. He didn't win in his rookie season last year, but he comes out here in his second race of his sophomore season and finally gets his first Cup Series win. Yeah, it makes Joe Gibbs look pretty smart in the moves that Joe made during the offseason. And, uh, you know, the um, I've been looking at the, the fastest lap for each driver in each race so that I can help do the uh, lineup for the next race or try to figure it out. And he had the, you know, he was the third fastest guy, you know, so he, he definitely wasn't like, like you said, he wasn't a fluke to be up there. Um, of course, uh, Chase Elliott's laps were, which were much faster than everybody else's most of the race. But once again, as the race goes on, if you adjust and you get better as the race goes on, that's the key. And, uh, you know, that 20 team, definitely got him uh, fast enough at the end of the race to make the moves he needed to make. That's definitely one of those things. I know I mentioned to you after Chase kind of went and ran away with the first stage there that like, what is the secret sauce behind what Chase Elliott is doing? Because between the, I think it's like SMT data that all of the teams can see like when he's braking, when he's accelerating, all of all of that data, and then the video footage of just seeing when, again, kind of where he's breaking, how he's entering the, the turns, how he's exiting the turns. What about that the, that he is doing or his team is doing to make him just so good on these road courses? Is it a setup secret? I, I just don't honestly don't know. But when you watch Chase Elliott run through a road course and you watch somebody else that's just kind of decent at road course racing, you can see the difference. I think there was only two times in that entire race that I saw Chase lock up his front end going into a turn, and that was probably toward the end of stage two. So impressive run for him for sure. Again, Ryan Blaney, second race of the season, comes home with the top 15 after struggling uh, pretty mightily with handling throughout that race. And it's a little bit of a surprise after what he was able to do in the clash, but under different circumstances, totally different car, totally different time of day, temperature, all of that, uh, and starting position. Uh, Ryan had commented, I think his only comment after the race that I've seen so far was just saying that they kind of started in one heck of a hole there in 27th and they were really only way able to dig themselves back up to 15th. So taking a look at the points after this race, it looks like in driver points, Ryan is in 19th. So compared to last year, that's a bit of a hole, I would say. Well, yeah, last year they got off to such a good start. Um, it's going to take a couple of weeks. Let's just put it, you know, just it is what it is right now. These things are, you know, they'll work themselves out. They'll get to a mile half track this next week coming up, and they'll be able to do some things on the track uh, and move themselves right up, right up to where they should be. So I don't, I'm not panicking. It's early in the season. Um, I think there's a couple of races to be won before the playoffs even happen. So, I, I wouldn't even worry about points just yet. Yeah, so 19th in the driver standings, 21st in the owner standings for that number 12 team, Penske Ford Mustang. He's got a little bit of work to do. We talked about in the season preview that they really needed to focus on stage points, and unfortunately, zero goose egg in the stage points so far this season. But hopefully there's some more races that are coming up in the next few races on the Cup Series schedule that Ryan will have a chance to put himself back into contention as far as points go. 
This Week in NASCAR History. This week in NASCAR history, February 25th, 1959, Lee Petty is officially declared winner of the Daytona 500 61 hours after the event. NASCAR President Bill France said that photographs and film evidence had substantiated that Petty won the hard-fought race. This is going back to the race on February 22nd. Johnny Beauchamp was flagged the winner in a photo finish with Petty, but they declared at the end of that that they didn't have enough evidence to support who actually won the race. So the France family asked for anyone that had photos uh, of the or of the results to send them into NASCAR. They spent 61 hours reviewing all of this footage. And then finally, Lee Petty was declared the winner of the first ever Daytona 500. So going back all the way to the first race, plenty of photo finishes, literal photo finish in this case, that gave Lee Petty the win in the first, first race. Can you imagine having to go to the drugstore and get your... Uh... Get your pictures developed and then hurry up and bring them out back to the track. Yeah, I can imagine that there. I don't know what they would have had back then. It wouldn't have been the Walgreens. I don't know what they would have back home. They're trying to figure out someone that can develop this film for them. Maybe they even did it at the track. I don't know how long, but asking fans or anybody else around, hey, do you have photos so we can figure out who actually won this race? Can you imagine today's day and age, how many people would Photoshop their driver out front if they did yeah. that? I could see that happening. I also see um, even like uh, with the race in the 500 with the whole controversy over whether Chase had won or Michael McDowell had won. Um, I think Pete Pistoni from SiriusXM NASCAR had tweeted out like while all of that was happening, he said something about like, man, there's there's a lot of people out there uh, uh, doing like a, a was it like this a Bruder, a Bruder film analysis of this yeah. finish of this finish from the the kennedy assassination so i thought yeah that yeah, was kind of ca- that was kind of yeah, the caution the caution light oh it's blink no it's not blinking yeah it's blinking wait a minute where are they at where's the next loop at you know so yeah there was a lot of that controversial finishes in the daytona 500 going back to its first running in february of 1959 Moving on, February 25th, 1968, Carol Yarborough wins the Daytona 500 by less than a second over Lee, Leroy Yarborough. Gordon John, Gordon John Cox, smoky eunuch-prepared Chevrolet, was not permitted to compete when NASCAR officials found a number of rules violations during inspection. And if anyone knows anything about Smokey Eunuch, he basically tore up the rule book or created new rules for NASCAR to find uh, in a lot of his cars, and I think people really loved him for that. Hey, if there's gray area, guys are going to find it. You know, here we are. How many years later? And uh, that's all Chad Knauss does all off season. You know, is he tears the rule book apart. And I would say, if you want to learn a little bit more about Smokey Eunuch, uh, he has a, there's a book out there called The Best Damn Garage in Town, which I think is kind of the, the nickname of his garage that was in Daytona Beach, uh, where he would set up a lot of his race cars and work on some other cars. And it gives you a little bit of insight into that gray area that Smokey liked to live in when it came to NASCAR racing. Let's take a look at February 22nd. February 22nd, 1970, Pete Hamilton, recently signed to drive a Petty Enterprises Plymouth, posts an upset victory in the Daytona 500. Hamilton passes Ford's David Pearson with nine laps to go and wins by three car lengths. Again, Daytona 500, there's plenty of upset victories going apparently all the way back to 1970. You have Derek Cope winning. You have Trevor Bain winning. You have Michael McDowell winning. It's kind of a little bit of a, an upset-friendly race, but it's also what keeps it exciting. And if you were, uh, even if you're not a fan of Michael McDowell, the way he won that race, his excitement after that, his just genuine passion for the sport, and um, I don't know. It was a feel-good victory for me, I thought. Yeah. It, amazing um, that uh, the uh, races that you're talking about are pre-restrictor um, plate, you know, before the restrictor plate, and yet they had close finishes without the restrictor plate, you know, which is amazing. Yeah. And you don't really think of that because when you do see some of the footage from back in the day when, uh, NASCAR was the best, according to several of the, the, uh, longtime fans that people were, there maybe would have been only a handful of people even on the lead lap, let alone on the same straightaway when it came to the finish. So racing has definitely evolved over the years and it's really hard, I think, to compare generations, but I'd like to think racing is racing and it's always been exciting. So 
Now let's take a look back to February 23rd, 1986. Kyle Petty comes from 5th to 1st when the top four cars are wiped out in a crash and wins the Miller High Life 400 at Richmond Fairgrounds Raceway. Dale Earnhardt triggers a massive pileup in the final laps when he hooks Darrell Waltrip's rear bumper. I know I've seen footage of this race and heard about it, and I read about it recently just because I wanted to know a little bit more about Kyle Petty's career. Uh, because you know he's kind of overshadowed by the king with his 200 wins but kyle had a pretty decent cup career as it goes and this was one of the probably the most famous races that he won just because of this incident between Earnhardt and daryl waltrip and finally our last date here this week in nascar history we're going to february 27th 1994 in rusty wallace's second start in a ford he rides to victory in the Goodwrench 500 at Rockingham, Wallace and the Roger Penske team switched from Pontiacs to Fords during the off-season from 1993, headed into the 1994 season. Can't imagine Rockingham being that, you know, it's one of those tracks that you kind of wish came back. There was some great racing going on on that track back in the day. I really liked it. I know Dave Blaney had a pole at Rockingham, used to run relatively well there. Was a little bit sad to see it come off the schedule, but... A lot of that was just fan participation. Uh, even when they tried to bring it back, I think for a few truck series races, I think they did pretty well their first truck race back. But after that, it just seems like just a tough market. I think there's just so many racetracks in the North Carolina area that fans are kind of split. And that's kind of why you see Rockingham go away. That's kind of why you see North Wilkesboro go away. And you're really just left with Charlotte, Darlington, the Virginia tracks are kind of all within driving distance for fans. So sad to see it go. Maybe it'll be resurrected again someday, but a lot of it will take money and just somebody that's maybe just passionate about the place. So that kind of wraps up closing up my history book here for this week in NASCAR history. Tune in next week again, if you want to hear a little bit more from days gone by in NASCAR. Ryan Blaney weekend preview Homestead Miami Speedway. All right, Steve, it's time for our race preview part of the podcast, and we're moving on to Cup Series race number three on the schedule, the Dixie Vodka 400 Sunday, February 28th at Homestead Miami Speedway. You can catch this race at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on Fox and also on MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR radio. We're staying in the state of Florida, going all the way down to the bottom of the state, Homestead Miami Speedway. Our first, I don't want to say normal track of the season, but we're not on a super speedway. We're not on a road course. We're going to, I think, probably one of the best 1.5-mile 1. tracks on the circuit. Yeah, the 1.5 miles, It's um, you know this is the fun time for, for the Penske guys. This is when you see what we saw last year, where they've got the cars dialed in. And no matter where you know, Ryan starts, uh, by the end of that first stage, he'll be in the points. I guarantee that. And uh, you're going to get some stage points and, you know, we're going to see some, some moving and shaking this week. I will say facility wise, having been there and uh, headed there again this weekend, it's a pretty simple setup at that racetrack. You kind of park out uh, just right outside of the track. You could walk in. If you've been to Daytona or something else like that, I mean, Daytona is a beast to itself where they really say that, you know, it's like a stadium experience whereas Homestead's a little bit more open and free-flowing and they have the grandstand and it's not necessarily as big or as tall, um, but from most seats in that place, you get a pretty good uh, viewpoint of the track. My favorite uh, side is I like to sit before the start-finish line because you can really see the guys that like to rim ride around that track, and I'm specifically thinking of like Kyle Larson and Tyler Reddick, especially in the Xfinity race there last fall. Um, just these kind of like the way they, they glide against the wall, sometimes kissing it a little bit, you see the sparks fly and then they shoot down the front stretch toward the start finish line. It's a great place to see a race. And luckily for us over the last couple of years, Ryan has improved his finish almost every single start, except for one that he's had at Homestead over the year. The, you know, the mile and a half, um, is where, like I said, where they're going to make their moves here. And uh, Ryan, um, like you said, has is, is gotten better and better. But this race moving to earlier in the season is is something that's going to be different. And having it earlier in the year, um, because this used to be the race for the championship, and uh, being able to do it earlier in the year, year, year is going to make a big difference uh, for some of these teams. And I think it might even make it a little bit racier. Some people like to say that when 
they're at the championship race that the drivers that aren't in the championship four kind of cut some people some slack they don't want to ruin a race for somebody else they don't want to cause a big stir but at this point third race of the season i think the gloves are off a little bit plus it's the first time that they can kind of truly show that mile and a half horsepower that they have now ryan himself has six starts at homestead miami speedway going all the way back to the 2015 season when he was driving for the wood brothers in 2015 he finished 17th 2016 he finished 26th 2017 he finished 29th 2018 finished 17th and then 2019 11th and then we go back to this race last year and ryan came home the third place finish so definitely some progress there over the years and i think it sets up for a good race for ryan to rebound after struggling in the first two races of the year yeah, there's there'll be they'll make up their points that we're you know we're not really worried about points because these are the type of races they'll make up their points and they'll get themselves right up there where they need to be. Um, interesting thing would be to see the guys who've won the first two races, uh, kind of keep an eye on them now because they've got a chance to pad themselves a little bit going into the playoffs, a chance to win stages and stuff like that. So you're going to see some strategy calls, especially the 34. Uh, the 20 is with the team that's really, really well established and they know they're going to do good with the 20. But watch uh, Michael McDowell in the 34 because they need to get themselves some extra points here or there. And you're going to see some things where they might stay out on tires longer than other people uh, just to make sure that at the end of a stage, maybe they get those points. So they're, they're going to be fun to watch uh, these next couple weeks. The last few guys that went to victory lane at Homestead include Martin Truex Jr. in 2017, Joey Logano in 2018, Kyle Busch in 2019. Now, of course, those were all came in the championship race. But then last year, Denny Hamlin was the one that came home victorious at Homestead when that race was run a little bit earlier in the year, even though I believe it was still kind of postponed due to the uh, COVID break that happened. So all those guys are in the field. None of those guys have won yet this year, and I think Hamlin, of everybody, has kind of shown up in the first two races of the year and probably is one of the favorites to watch going into this weekend outside of our fan favorite here, Ryan Blaney. Yeah, it's the, it's the Gibbs cars, the Penske cars, and Chase. Those are the guys to watch. You know, No offense to the other guys at Hendrick right now, but, but right now Chase is the guy at Hendrick, and then it's the Penske cars and the Gibbs cars. And uh, those, two, those two teams have their mile-and-a-half program really well set up. And one of those Hendrick drivers new to this year is Kyle Larson. And I mentioned him a little bit earlier as being one of those guys that really likes to rim ride at Homestead. And he's one of those people that analysts often, as we're heading into Homestead, always thought if Kyle could just get to the championship four, like that could be his time to shine. They've have said that he was also one of those drivers that's maybe cut some people some slack in those championship races that he wasn't a direct competitor in, in the past. So they thought he's just been kind of waiting to finally pounce and win at Homestead because of his driving style there and his quick laps there. So I think he would be another driver to watch going into this weekend. We said earlier that Ryan really needs to focus on getting some stage points this week. So taking a look at the stage breaks, there's going to be a stage break at lap 80, a stage break at lap 160, and the checkered flag is going to fall at lap 267. 400.5 miles is the length of this race. Again, you can catch it at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time on Fox and MRN, and we're hoping that Ryan will be able to rebound, give us a little bit more to cheer for. Did get him come up with the 15th place finish last week at the Daytona Road Course. But if he's coming off of a top five run at Homestead uh, last season, and he's been kind of on upward trajectory, some would say maybe we're looking at a second place finish. Maybe we're looking at a win. I don't know. I just really want to see some solid uh, finishes in the stages and then just a solid finish overall to kind of right this ship uh number 12 ship that he has for team penske um and head on out to i think las vegas after that yeah i've got the i got the slide rule out and did the math and um don't quote me again but last week i was pretty close um right now uh it looks like ryan will start either 15th or it might be 14th or 13th i'll give it like one or two each way really because um i don't have the full lineup of who's gonna gonna uh participate this week and a lot of uh what uh, changes those things is who's going to be in the race versus who was in last week's race some of those cars and teams that have more than one driver um but right now i've got ryan right around 15th or 14th to start the race um and i believe i've got denny hamlin on the pole to start the race so um 
you know, the last race uh, with all the metrics they use, uh, one of them is the, is the fastest lap. And uh, we know Chase Elliott had the fastest lap last race, but uh, you know, Ryan wasn't too bad on that. You know, he was probably about 13th or 14th fastest, even though it didn't feel, you know, from watching him, but so he, he did enough things to move himself up to start, start this race better off. And honestly, I think the team will go into a better mindset there. Starting 27th on the road course was definitely a little rough, especially with as how physical he had to be to kind of beat and bang his way up through the pack just to even get to that 15th place finish overall. Now, starting in that 12, 13, 14, 15th place spot, heading into Homestead, I think that'll give them a little bit more of an easier road ahead to get to the top 10, top 5. Um, and they'll also hopefully be able to flex some of that Ford uh, performance muscle when it comes to moving up through the field and setting some quick laps around that 1.5 mile speedway in Southern Florida. You know, um, starting lane, uh, is an interesting thing at a road course because you're in the inside or you're in the outside going into that turn one and whatever it does, whether it goes right or left, um, you know, sometimes you want to be on one or the other, whereas at the mile and a half tracks, especially, um, they know how to handle each situation, whether they're in the inside line or the outside line on the restart on a mile and a half. By the time they get down to turn one, they pretty much know what they have to do from each lane. So restarts, you know, should be a little better. Um, are they going back to the, uh, the cone, the choose cone too? So this will be something we'll get to see that during the race also. Uh, everybody picking which lane they're going to be in. Yeah, I was just going to say, after maybe after the first couple of restarts, people will see which lane is really working. And sometimes it might even be, I know it's not a super speedway, but depending on who's behind you, getting a little bit of a push out of the start and a push that's timed kind of well, because also if you get pushed too hard and your back wheels come off the ground, that's not going to be that great of a start for you. But yeah, the choose cone is going to be back again for 2021. They didn't have it the road course. They didn't have it on the super speedway for fairly obvious reasons. Um, but it will be back at Homestead for this weekend. and just adds another element of strategy uh, because the other thing that comes with the choose cone is that you need to get in your position within a, sp- a certain spot on the track where they send you to the back of the pack if you miss yeah. that or if you go over that actual painted orange lines on the track. Yeah, it's really interesting to, once again, listen to spotter Josh Williams on this because he is counting – for Ryan guys he's trying to figure out how many and let's say Ryan's 12th or 13th heading up to that cone and he counts how many of the guys went high and how many of the guys went low so that Ryan knows what decision to make you know whether you know it's half and half or maybe 10 guys 10 of the 12 guys went high you know well we got to go low because we, we're going to make up a bunch of positions you know so that that kind of thing is really interesting to listen to the spotter on because he really tried to try to help that driver figure out what line to be in on the restart All right, Steve, so that's our look a little bit ahead at Homestead Miami Speedway. Now as we head toward the checkered flag of this episode of the Team Blaney podcast, I think it's about time for us to take a look at the Team Blaney NASCAR Fantasy Live League that we've been participating in for the second year in a row as far as a group of Ryan Blaney fans and Team Blaney podcast followers and social media followers kind of get together, formed this uh, fantasy league that you can still sign up for. You can find the links on our social media accounts. You can search for Team Blaney when you go to the NASCAR Fantasy Live website. It's not too late to join in. You could probably even join in halfway through the season and still might be able to beat Steve and us at this point in this season so far. Just to recap my picks from last week for the Daytona Road Course, I had started Chase Elliott, Michael McDowell, AJ Allmendinger, our man Ryan Blaney, and Martin Truex Jr., and I had Denny Hamlin in the garage. Um, I was a little preoccupied actually watching the race and uh, never even thought to take Hamlin out of the garage at some point to replace him. But overall, I would say I did relatively okay. Uh, Chase scored a lot of stage points early on, did not finish too well. Michael McDowell had a rough start to that race, uh, but rallied for an eighth-place finish. A.J. Allmendinger, I'm not sure where he landed uh, too much on stage points. looks like he only got two. Um, Ryan, who I did, probably would have been the person maybe to move out of this uh, lineup a little bit, didn't end up with any stage points. Uh, but Martin Truex Jr. did pretty well, too. So he got me another 10 there. I had picked Denny Hamlin to win. That didn't work out. He finished third. I picked Chase Elliott to be the top Chevrolet driver. That didn't work out. He was eighth of those. Uh, Ryan was the seventh uh, finisher of the Fords. I had picked him as the top Ford driver. 
I picked Kyle Busch as the top Toyota driver, and uh, uh, my fantasy day probably went about as well as his race day did. He got damaged early on, and then I said he was kind of taking out some of that aggression toward the end there um, mm-hmm. in an incident that he had. On the plus side, I picked Toyota as the top manufacturer. That worked out well. And I picked Joe Gibbs Racing as the winning team. And again, that worked out well with Christopher Bell winning the race. Yeah, that's what I had also. I had Joe Gibbs Racing um, as the winning team. Um, I tried to go along with some Chevy because I had uh, Chase Elliott you know, winning. So, you know, But I had Hamlin, Martin, Larson, Chase, and Amarola. And... Um, I had Brad to be the top forward and Denny to be the top Toyota. Um, I was close on Denny. I was off by two spots, but um, the Gibbs one is where all the points were. Cause Gibbs, Gibbs ran that race really well. They all had good equipment um, except for uh, what happened with Kyle. So let's take a look at the overall league standings. And sometimes this is a little bit funny because people can sign up with basically any name that they want. So currently leading the way with 384 points, we have Blaney's Daisy. Then we have Moon Cup in second, Doug K0525 in third, David Lazaro with 374 points in fourth. Also tied for fourth is Dusty Hawk 90. In sixth, we have Blaring Idiots with 356 or 362 points. Hamilton, 1940, in 7th. 8th, we have Team Penske. I'm not going to say whether that's the official Team Penske or not. Who knows? Maybe it is. Um, in 8th, we have Clyde's Chicken Pit Racing, which I think that's, that's a throwback to a movie, right? That's Stroke Race. There, there you go. <laughs> and then finally, in 10th, I kind of like this one, Semper Fast. That's kind of funny. Like that, 353 points, that's rounding out the top 10. Now, if you keep going way down, way down, way down, past my wife, way down, 28th position, we have my man Mez over here, Mez 12th, 304 points in 28th, and then continuing to fall all the way down through the leaderboard, 36th position, this is my team, if you look for it, it says Team Blaney Admin, 273 points, 36th position in our NASCAR NASCAR Fantasy Live uh, League. So, Steve... Who are, uh, we talked about some drivers to watch uh, just a couple of minutes ago, but I would say Denny Hamlin's probably somebody you want to have, at least in your starting lineup. I think Kyle Larson's another person that you should consider. I would throw in maybe at a little bit lower there, uh, Tyler Reddick. He's won two straight Xfinity Series championships by winning both Homestead races, and he's pretty fast there as long as he can keep that car clean. The difference, I would say, for Reddick is that he's racing a composite body in the Xfinity Series that he really could kind of rough up the wall a little bit with, but in the Cup Series, you really can't do that, at least for this year until they go to the new car next year. Um, Cause you kind of slap that wall a little bit too much and uh, your car is going to be a little bit messed up. Is there anyone else that you're looking at specifically? Uh, the number four, Kevin Harvick um, has had a rough start to the year, you know, not really looking too good last weekend, but he finished up there and, and he beat, beaten his bang his way up there. And so because of that, he's going to start near the front again this weekend. And uh, I think he's going to be one of the guys real happy to see a mile and a half track. All right, so again, if you want to join the Team Blaney NASCAR Fantasy Live League, you can look for the links on our social media pages. You can also go to the NASCAR Fantasy Live website, sign up, search for Team Blaney, and join that league. It's just for fun. We're just trying to keep things interesting. If uh, Ryan's not having that great of a day, you can kind of pull up your fantasy lineup and see if there's anybody else that you can kind of maybe silently root for, at least hope that they get some stage points throughout the day and keep things a little bit interesting. So Steve, like we kind of end every show. I'll ask you what is your prediction for Ryan's finish this weekend in the Dixie vodka 400 at Homestead Miami speedway. I'm going to say fifth this weekend. I'm going to give him a top five right at fifth. Um, I think that they'll have what it takes to be up there and uh, you know, starting closer to the front, pass a couple cars there at the beginning and work your way to the front and uh, stay out of trouble the rest of the day. And I think they'll have a good, good day. I'm definitely hoping for a top five. I think he just comes home with a solid top 10 finish, but I think this is definitely the week, like I said a little bit earlier, for them to right the ship. Ryan can kind of refocus, get back to uh, the style of track that they're going to be racing on for a pretty big part of the season, and hopefully that Penske power shines and Ryan's able to keep the car clean and pass some good cars and get some good stage points and get himself back on track for the 2021 season. 
Yeah. If, um, if you guys are, you know, following, of course, the team Blaney podcast, make sure you follow team Blaney on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, because Adam will be at the tracks this, he'll be at the track this weekend and he'll post pictures. He had a great picture of the rainbow. Uh, this past weekend. So you never know what you're going to see. He might get some good pictures of something going on there at the track. Uh, so it's always good to have him on, on your social media. All right, Steve, I think it's about that time to throw the checkered flag on this episode of the team Blaney podcast. If you'd like to learn about myself or Steve a little bit more, go ahead Scroll back a little bit and listen to the first episode of the podcast that really dives deep into how we both became fans of the Blaney Racing family. As Steve just said, if you'd like to interact with us, you can find Team Blaney on Twitter at Team Blaney. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Team Blaney. And don't forget also to download, rate, and subscribe to the Team Blaney podcast that you're listening to right now. You can find us on the Apple and Google podcast apps. And Steve will tell you to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. It will you can set it to download automatically and you'll have the fresh episode every week. That's right. If we do this right, Tuesday morning you get something to listen to. And to close out the show, I think I've said to close out the show about six times, but for real, to close out the show this time, I want to remind you to check out the Ryan Blaney Family Foundation. This organization established in 2018 supports causes that have closely impacted the Blaney family, including the Alzheimer's Association and UPMC Sports Medicine. You'll find out more about the foundation on its website, ryanblaneyfamilyfoundation.org, and on Twitter at rbfamfoundation, and then finally on Facebook at facebook.com slash rbfamilyfoundation. And I think I announced or talked about their announcement last week that they are coming up with a new old school style fan club called the Blaney Bunch. So anyone that was in the Dave Blaney fan club back in the day, hoping that it's going to be a little bit like that, that'll give you some insight into Ryan, what's happening with Ryan, what's happening with Dave, and anybody else in the Blaney Racing family. Really looking forward to that. Steve, you think that you're going to be one of the first people to sign up for the fan club? I'm, 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 yeah, as soon as somebody will let me know when and where, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, so stay, uh, stay tuned to Team Blaney. Stay tuned to those uh, social media accounts for the Ryan Blaney Family Foundation. I'm sure that they'll have an announcement out soon. The best part about this fan club is that all the proceeds are going to help fund and support the missions of the Ryan Blaney Family Foundation. So again, for my co-host Steve Mez, my name's Adam Rogers, and we'll catch you next week on the next edition of the Team Blaney Podcast.